Hi, this is Herb Kressel, and uh, welcome to the uh, August Radiology Podcast. Uh, this morning, I'm joined uh, by uh, Dr. Michael Kuo, Associate Professor of Radiology and Pathology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, he and his colleagues uh, authored a fascinating multi-center study uh, entitled uh, Computed Tomography Radiogenomic Characterization of the ALK Molecular Phenotype in Non-Small Cell Carcinoma. And in this work, uh, Dr. Kuo uh, was joined by colleagues uh, from Seoul National University Hospital, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, Mayo Clinic, Phoenix, and Scottsdale Healthcare in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, welcome, Dr. Quo. Thank you for Thank joining you. us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Okay. Now, can you kind of review for our uh, listeners and viewers what actually is radiogenomics and why is this a potentially important research avenue for radiologists? Sure. I'd be happy to. So, radiogenomics is essentially um, what I would call multi-scale phenotype integration. So it is trying to integrate multiple types of, multiple phenotypes across different spatial scales. For example, uh, imaging at the macroscopic or tissue level scale with clinical outcomes or to histopathology or uh, large-scale genomic data. And really, initially it's focused on large-scale genomic data because um, what we've, we've learned a lot of insights from that is that the, um, is that when we started to explore genomic data, for example, we realized that the biological space was much, much greater than we appreciated um, when we were just using um, conventional histopathology. And so that leads to different insights that perhaps on the imaging side, that a lot of the information in imaging has been underutilized. It exists, but it has been underutilized because it has been referenced to a much smaller dimensional space at the histopathology level. So do you mean it's sort of like the inverse problem? Normally we think of a genotype expressing itself in certain features, and here you're trying to match up the features that relate to a constellation of uh, genes or gene expression. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Now, in the paper uh, that uh, you and your colleagues wrote, uh, it's about this uh, ALK translocation in non-small cell uh, carcinoma of the lung. Uh, can you tell us about this? It's a fairly recent discovery. What, what's the importance uh, about it, and, and what, what is it? Sure, I'd be happy to talk about uh, what I know about it. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating story in, in oncology. I mean, what we've seen is it it's, was discovered probably around 10 years ago, and from the time of discovery, 10 years ago, it has seen uh, discovery, validation as a target uh, and a driver um, of, of um, disease in, in, in uh, lung cancer patients to development and approval of a specific drug that, that specifically targets that molecular uh, subtype. And basically it's a, um, it most commonly occurs as a, as a, what we call it, an activating translocation in the ALK gene, which stands for the anaplastic lymphoma kinase gene. And it uh, represents a distinct, uh, mutually exclusive uh, subtype of, of uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And it occurs in about two to five percent uh, of the population and prior to this, traditionally what's been known about it is just that it occurs in uh, usually younger patients that are non, uh, never smokers or former light smokers, meaning like less than 10 years. Uh, so it's been a, just a really interesting story just to, to see this um, kind of in this 
genomic error, a, a, a target discovered and rapidly translated to a, a drug that's affecting patients in a very profound way in, 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 in just uh, 10 years, for example. So my understanding is, is that they identified this translocation genetic uh, abnormality. It has a very low incidence in the population of non-small cell cancer patients, but it's particularly drug responsive. Is that correct? Right, and, and the reason, one of the reasons uh, that it's particularly drug responsive is because uh, the scientists behind this were able to identify specifically the driver, uh, the driver gene, the driver mutation in this case, the activating mutation. Um, and, and target a therapy specifically against that, that, that defect. And so it is a very precise uh, uh, drug compared to what we've, we've dealt with in the past. And, and I think that speaks a lot to, to, to its effectiveness. So if I understand it, the idea that you, what you were trying to look at in part was sort of how do you find the needle in the haystack among all the people with non-small cell cancers? Are there imaging features that might help you identify those that have and don't have the uh, abnormality? Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that at one level, I mean, we're reviewing this in that, that the imaging space is very large. There's a lot of information in there. Um, and we know when we look at images that, that the images are heterogeneous. Even though we may think that this is a high suspicion for a lung adenocarcinoma, we know that there are, there's a, a, a large distribution of features. Sure. And so while we may say that some lung you know, adenocarcinomas have classic features of X, Y, and Z, that there are some features, some tumors that have features that, are, that do not fall into that standard. And it's possible by extracting that information in, in a rational, intelligent way that we may find that, that it actually is relevant and tied to something else that now we've discovered, such as, for example, maybe it's related to a molecular phenotype um, that hadn't been previously appreciated. So, so it's trying to make rational sense as much as possible with the information that we have of the imaging now that we have improved information at the genetic level. And uh, I know there's a lot of interest in this, and one of the things that we see in our journal frequently is that when there's a hot topic, we see a lot of very small single-center studies uh, as groups are competing to get the information out. But you actually managed to put together a multi-center study on this. H how did you do that? Any inside tips for <laughs> other investigators? You know, we were just extremely fortunate to have just great collabor uh, collaborators, um, just very eager, very uh, helpful. Um, we were uh, able to engage uh, the collaborators that were um, principally involved in the, the pivotal clinical trials, the phase one, uh, phase two, and the phase three clinical trials that uh, evaluated the, uh, the drug, prosotinib, against these patients. And so, um, like I said, I mean... Um, so did you know them personally? Did you just were able to reach out, or did you just read their papers and wrote to them, or how did you do it? <laughs> sure, can't give you all my secrets. No, <laughs> I, uh, no, it was. I think it was. Uh, you know, we we reached out to, to them when we realized uh, that this was becoming a very when when the Alf story kind of started to come out uh, into the main mainstream, um, and um, you know, we said, hey, this is what we do. Uh, this is you know the kind of our approach and our technology, and and they uh, were you know, very open-minded and very interested and, you know, expressed great enthusiasm. And, and from there, we just kind of took off and it just kind of grew, snowballed. So just, yeah. So uh, tell me, uh, what did you actually do in this study? Sure. So what we essentially did is we um, had a, uh, a large population of patients representing multiple mutation types, um, of which of interest is obviously the ALK phenotype uh, included in this uh, cohort. We then uh, designed a screen of 24 uh, CT imaging features that were evaluated on every, uh, every patient's scan um, pre-treatment. 
and as well as some clinical um, factors. And we then uh, applied a, uh, a statistical approach to develop a predictor that could help distinguish uh, potentially those patients that were out positive from those that were not out positive. And then we wanted to validate that in an, in an independent data set to, to really test you know, um, whether or not our finding was, was, was real. Okay. Why was the test cohort that you used an enriched cohort? Uh, it was almost a one-to-one -one of people that did sure. or didn't. And then sure. for the validation set, you, you had a very low incident of right. out positivity. What's right. the thinking for that? So the thinking behind that, uh, the, the reason why we designed it that way was because we wanted to, when we're trying to find the, the signal from the noise, the needle in the haystack of the out positive patients, we wanted to create a scenario in which um, we maximized what I would call the signal to noise. So um, had a lot of outpatient positive patients. Um, and we wanted to be able to, to, to differentiate that from the non-out patients. Uh, so we, we had a highly enriched population of that. But we wanted to limit the other factors. So we wanted to make sure that they were, you know, we could limit other, other you know, variables such as um, that may be contributing, such as, um, you know, factors of different imaging protocols, or we wanted to put it as, make it as much as controlled as possible. So we selected these from, from the, the clinical trial. And, uh, and then from the validation perspective, we wanted to then kind of put our, our biomarker, you know, through the fire, so to speak. And so we wanted to test it in, in kind of what would be practical situations. So we wanted to get something in which the, you know, um, the out population was then in a, represented a much lower prevalence. Um, so we had uh, a much smaller population of out positive patients. And then we also wanted to include a background of other mutation uh, types uh, that would, a, a, a physician would encounter, such as the KRAS or EGFR mutants or EGFR wild types. We wanted to include um, different races, uh, so Caucasian, East Asian. So we wanted to just really kind of put it in what we would call a, a, a real world setting as much as we could. Okay. okay. And what did you find? What, what, so, what do we need to know? So I think the, some of the highlights, I mean, I think that is essentially is that we found that there were um, four uh, principal factors that were, um, that were strongly associated or, or what I would call uh, predictive of out, uh, out positivity. And three of these features were, CT, uh, were imaging features seen by, by CT scan, uh, such as a central location, um, a uh, absence of a pleural tail or association of a large pleural effusion, and then a, a clinical uh, variable of age less than 60. So those four features together was, were associated with um, uh, a, str a strong diagnostic accuracy that we validated in the, um, in, in the, the validation set um, for prediction of, of out-positive tumors. Um, As so, I recall, uh, the accuracy was around 80%, is that correct? Right. Right, and it was pretty consistent, you know, um, in the training, in the test set, as well as the validation set, and in the subset analysis. And then, you know, the other thing that we, we did, we evaluated exploratory, was um, to see if we could find potential predictors of, of treatment response to the targeted therapy, crizotinib. Uh, and and um, an initial analysis uh, seems like there is a potential biomarker that we would, uh, that, that, that seems to hold promise that um, we'd like to validate in further independent studies. And what was that? That was the disordered vascular pattern? Yes, yeah, so there was a disorganized vascular phenotype that was associated with a, uh, a shortened, um, what we call durable response to crizotinib, about 11 and a half months compared to 20, and a half, uh, 20 months um, if you didn't have the phenotype. And how do you think this the information should be used? Now we have this. Uh, you, in the paper, you sort of say, uh, this shouldn't replace molecular testing, but how should we use it? Well, 
you know, I think just like in traditional rad path correlation, I mean, you know, imaging in very few cases absolutely replaces the gold standard, you know, of, of, of histopathology, but it, but, it, but it can serve as a very good, useful, non-invasive tool. Um, I think that it's a similar scenario. I mean, I think that now that we appreciate that there's this molecular phenotype, I mean, it's, it's been so, it's been such a recent discovery. There's, you know, the radiologists to date, as far as I'm aware, have not really had a chance to explore this. And so now I think that we understand that there is this phenotype, and now we understand that there are some simple features that, that seem to be reproducible uh, in independent data sets that we can, we can apply to identify um, with reasonable accuracy those patients that, have a, you know, that, that are likely to be out positive from those that are not likely to be out positive. Uh, and I think that that can be useful for, uh, for informing clinicians of suspicion as well as for um, uh, general educational purposes for the radiological you know, community for both understanding and learning about this molecular phenotype as well as uh, engaging in uh, similar or other approaches for discovering um, associations with other uh, relevant um, uh, phenotypes. Now, now what if a center doesn't have easy access to molecular testing? Uh, could you imagine them using the equation and then uh, deciding to implement treatment uh, based on this, or you would be not comfortable with that? You know, I don't think that, uh, that they would implement treatment based on this solely, because I think that for one reason, you know, it, it's that um, the, the FDA label for the drug is based on, uh, it's tied to the, the tissue diagnostic test, sure. you know, ultimately. But I think that it, it could be useful in informing the clinician um, that, you know, so, you know, in reported studies, it's about 80% that this is likely to be an out-positive tumor. I think that, you know, uh, it needs to be borne out in larger uh, analyses. And, uh, but I think that one area that we seem to see a very strong signal, in particular with um, an accuracy of almost 90%, was in the, the, the lower stage operable uh, patients. And so if that holds out, then, then potentially we're starting to get to that level of, of you know, comfort that in which... Uh, you know, you may be able to, to say something to, the, to the, the clinician to that effect. So you think you'd like to learn more about long-term outcome as it relates to the biomarker? Uh, right. I, mean, if, I think as, as more studies come along and um, they start to look at treatment of patients um, or diagnosis of patients in earlier stages, um, that um, we would need to do further additional studies to see how this plays out. Because um, right now, a lot of the, the, the emphasis has been on the advanced stage patients, the inoperable patients. Um, right. So now, uh, I think the striking thing is, is that the needle in the haystack aspect of this, where you have a, a genetic abnormality that is presenting as histologically non-small cell uh, lung cancer, but 5% of the patients uh, have this abnormality, and then they're responsive to a drug that was developed, targeted to it. And so the, I was thinking if you were working from the drug, as we frequently do in oncology, it would be very hard to pick out this subset. So do you think that uh, the same issue where in a lot of other types of cancers there are these subpopulations that may have somewhat unique imaging features that may portend specific treatment approaches? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's what we're learning more and more at the genomic level, and I think that, you know, as, as more of these radiogenomic studies have come about, I think we're starting to see that that's the case, that there are, that imaging can start to, to, to weed out some of these um, um, different uh, molecular phenotypes. Well, uh, I want to uh, 
Sounds like you're ready to go. <laughs> I want to thank you for participating in the podcast. I also want to thank Dr. Hiroto Atabu from the uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, who uh, I spoke to about your paper and who helped me kind of organize my thoughts for the podcast. So uh, uh, I think this is great work and uh, nice talking to you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for having me. Sure. Bye-bye. Yeah.